0: Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
1: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Well That was quite the weekend wasn't it and it's hard to know exactly where to begin on monday morning as the gloom descends upon london once more uh, it was actually quite sunny literally about five minutes ago Uh, it's now dark gloomy rainy windy i can't actually see the tower of london at all Uh, it is shrouded in mist Uh, there's spots on the windows it's wet it's awful it's dreadful it is also coming up to may bank holiday whitson bank holiday next weekend when it's also apparently going to be awful. Tremendous, isn't it? Any chance of a summer anytime soon? Anything anybody can do about that? We shall see. Uh, Right, anyway, let's give it a go. This morning, Dominic Cummings is preparing to give the government a complete monstering this week before a parliamentary committee into the way Downing Street handled the initial months of the pandemic. Uh, Slightly strange given that he was actually part of the process that he claims made so many mistakes. He's been categorising it as a joke. He wrote a 51-part thread on Twitter the other day I fear he's becoming a little bit obsessive. But maybe he's right. We shall see. Martin Bashir was bleating to the Sunday Times as well that he thinks it's a bit unfair to be blamed for Princess Diana's death, even though he admits that he misled her and forged some documents to secure an interview with her in 1995. He reckons that he was very friendly with her uh, right up to her death. She was still very friendly with his family. Prince William, however, is still calling for an investigation into the BBC as to who knew what and when they knew it. And Prince Harry has also apparently upset uh, his grandmother with his continuous whining about terrible his upbringing was because she's now saying the queen this is well not only are you telling me that your father was useless as a father that would be prince charles but that he was useless as a father because i was useless as a mother and i'm the queen of the united kingdom of great britain and northern ireland i see all in all it's a pretty big week for news really and so now we're treated this morning to the glorious exclusive in the sun that prime minister boris johnson is to make carrie simmons uh, very happily his third wife sometime next summer presumably when he can guarantee that more than 30 people can attend many congratulations are in order but will he still be running the country uh, coming up of course 0344 499 1000 will take your calls up first this morning we'll be checking in with John Rental on the other big news of the weekend Sir so Keir Starmer has appeared on Piers Morgan's life stories and burst into tears <laughs> I mean I don't know he's tried every other way to sort of become popular maybe that'll work I sort of doubt it, though. Uh, Also, we'll be checking out why it's taking so long to get an appointment at the dentist. Some people are being told that they will have to wait three years to see anyone from the NHS. It's an absolute scandal. Just exactly what is going wrong. We need to hear your stories this morning. If you've been trying to get an appointment at the dentist, if you've managed to get one, uh, great. If you haven't, what have you been doing? We're hearing stories about people travelling off to uh, far reaches of Eastern Europe to get their teeth pulled out. Or to get Root Canal done? Are you actually having to go to those extents to get anything done? 0344 499 1000. Peter Hitchens is here. Howard Cox is here as well on the madness of fines. £14 million has been paid by drivers to local authorities because of these low-traffic neighbourhoods. You are, of course, listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. They definitely need to get a bit longer piece of music, don't they? This is the second time this has happened. It's a shocking state of affairs. Let's talk to John Rental, Chief Political Correspondent, uh, sorry, commentator, I should say, at The Independent. John, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. I don't mind you can call me a correspondent if you like. <laughs> Listen, I would never I would never stoop to calling you names. That would be a bad thing to do. Uh, also, it reminds me of The Correspondent. Was it, was it The Correspondent, that newspaper that, that got started up? Uh, was it by Carrie Simmons' uh, dad? Or was that The Independent? I can't remember. That was The Independent. Uh, no, the... the correspondent was a uh, was a was a brief uh, Sunday newspaper. That's right. I've got a feeling they still owe me money, you know. I think I wrote a piece for them once which they never paid me for. <laughs> I think it was it was, it was in competition <laughs> with the Independent on Sunday which was That's right, yeah. Uh,
2: possibly by Carrie uh, Simons' father. I'm not I'm not sure. <laughs> maybe I'll um, just
1: maybe I'll just send a bill to Downing Street like everybody else does and wait for it to <laughs> work its way through the county court system and, and get a summary judgment <laughs> against them. <laughs>
2: I think well, all the suggestions are that the prime minister's a bit stumped for cash, which is
0: that's what uh, we hear. But
1: so presumably, I, presumably he's now I, having to yeah. uh, he's presumably having to tout himself around to save up some money to get married next year because it's not cheap. We're told that in this country, uh, the average price of a wedding is about thirty-two grand. So I mean, uh, he's going to have to get one of his donors to uh, to, to sponsor, it, isn't he? Well, he's already alleged to have.
2: Borrowed money to pay for the pay for the wallpaper, yep. and he alleged that uh, one of the reasons why he wasn't concentrating at the start of the coronavirus pandemic was that he was desperately trying to finish uh, his uh, his his book on Shakespeare, <laughs> uh, which I imagine is probably quite an interesting book. But uh, I don't know if he's actually written it yet. But I mean he he needed the he needed the money from f- for the advance, so I think he had to submit some some sample chapters or something, right. and that was uh, that was that was distracting him.
1: I mean, it's good to know, isn't it, that uh, the, the 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 beating heart of government is being distracted by such things as Shakespeare and wallpaper, which I'm now told is basically peeling off the walls anyway because it wasn't put up right.
2: <laughs> Much better to to have a prime minister who knows knows something about Shakespeare. I think uh, I think that's uh, that's a good thing. Well, I suppose uh, we I mean to... it's certainly
1: better than Keir Starmer attempting to increase his popularity by being interviewed by Piers Morgan. <laughs>
2: yeah, that's, uh, that's not how I would do it. You're absolutely right, Mike um yes i am looking forward to to seeing this um it, it's well, this stuff about he burst into tears though. Oh, no. uh, it's, from the photos it looks as if you know t- his his eyes may have welled up a little bit when he was talking about his uh his late parents uh and his wife uh was, was wiping away tears in the audience but uh Uh, Well, there could be any
1: number of reasons for that, but let's not go into that. The other thing about uh, about Sir Keir Starmer is that, you know, if I was him, as I said at the weekend, uh, I'd be in tears quite a lot of the time anyway, due to looking at the latest poll ratings, which have got him even further down the pipe than he was the last time.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, that that latest uh, YouGov poll uh, puts the Conservatives 18 points ahead. I mean, incredible, isn't it? Pretty dismal. But, I mean, this is – this just – reinforces the point that the only thing people care about is, is the vaccines. Uh, there is no, no space in politics at the moment for the opposition. There's nothing that Keir Starmer can do about it. He's actually uh, in quite a good position to, uh, to, to, to fight the next election. But at the moment, nobody's interested in, in hearing from him. Uh, but he is, a unlike uh, his two predecessors as, uh, as Labour leader, He is somebody that people can imagine as prime minister. He does have competence. He is admittedly boring, uh, but he's the sort of person who people would be prepared to vote for in the right circumstances, I think, to run the country.
1: But But is it also the case that were there another candidate who was a bit more interesting and a bit more dynamic and a little bit more imaginative, he would be nowhere. The fact is Labour is so bereft of talent at the moment that there isn't anyone to challenge him.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, you're right. You're right, Mike. Tony Blair isn't going to come back, so... uh,
1: (laughs) I see you were getting some flack at the weekend for that ludicrous (laughs) article you wrote about how people seem to have uh, forgiven Tony Blair, and he's now much more popular than he was a couple of years ago. Yeah, no, one of my
2: most popular (laughs) tweets. I got uh, got one and a half thousand replies. Tremendous. Tremendous.
1: I mean, I know, I know that you can You can never overestimate how much Tony Blair is hated. I think quite wrongly, actually. I mean, I've always been quite a staunch defender of Tony Blair, um, aside from, obviously, the Iraq business. Um, you know, I always thought he was a great You were the Minister.
2: voice of Mike. I know. <laughs> yeah, no, well, obviously, uh, yeah, the, the, that is unre- the, the The hatred towards him is completely unreasonable and uh, the psychological reasons for it are deep and uh, and interesting but i mean my point is that uh, th- that it is ebbing away mm. i think people are prepared to give him a, a fair hearing especially in the labor party and the labor party which uh, elected uh, jeremy corbyn who not to put too fine a point tonight thinks that uh, Tony blair is a war criminal i mean it is quite extraordinary that jeremy Pre- jeremy corbyn was prepared to be a member of the party all the time when it was led by someone he actually thought or pretended to think was a war criminal i yes. mean it just doesn't sense right uh, well it's a bit these... like but
1: that's the problem Keir Starmer's got because Keir Starmer even though he he, he kind of make, makes noises about the fact that we are now under new management you know he worked for Jeremy Corbyn in Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet he had no problem being part of that kind of pro-Palestinian crazy you know commie kind of leftist madness um, and now suddenly he wants us to believe that uh, you know he's all he's all he's all better now and he's fine it
2: is quite extraordinary I mean you're absolutely right I mean the Labour Party is is two completely incompatible parties, mm. and uh, Keir Starmer's ability to switch from from one uh, one party to the to the other is uh, is is quite remarkable. Yeah.
1: Um, And also, also, you know, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn's ability to sort of shapeshift where he goes and calls uh, uh, Boris Johnson a liar, he calls Tony Blair a war criminal, all at the same time as standing on a platform with some very nasty people from the Palestinian uh, movement, including standing next to um, a sort of rather what you might call anti-Semitic looking... Um, sort of papier mache massive head. I couldn't tell if it was meant to be uh, a Jewish person or it was meant to be the king of Saudi Arabia, but whatever it was, it was pretty ghastly, pretty racist, and pretty nasty. And he's standing right next to it, uh, you know, yeah. talking through it, shouting through a megaphone uh, about Israel and how horrible they are.
2: Like, not the first time that uh, Jeremy Corbyn hasn't seen uh, plain anti Semitism in front of his face. No. Uh, and that is one of the one of the reasons why uh, I'm glad to see the back of him. Mm. Uh, but you're quite right; it, it does pose problems for Keir Starmer in uh, in making that transition. But I think he's been remarkably successful at it. And, you know, the fact that he's so far behind in the opinion polls is no real reflection on on him. I think it is purely to do with the fact that the government is is grudgingly popular at the moment. I think people. People don't like being nice to politicians, but they think that Boris Johnson has done a good job on the vaccines, and it's completely erased the memory of all this stuff that Dominic Cummings wants to go about, go on about on Wednesday, um, about how the Prime Minister handled the coronavirus last year. People aren't interested in that anymore. They're only interested in the fact that the vaccines are offering them the way back to uh, to a normal
1: life. Yes, exactly right. Now I didn't intend to talk about the Labour Party, but here we are talking about them. Let's talk about the Tory Party because on Wednesday Dominic Cummings um, will finally have his day in the sunshine, uh, where he gets to sit in front of a parliamentary committee and basically kind of uh, defenestrate uh, the Tory government of which he was very much a part at the beginning of the pandemic. He's going to say that they got it all wrong. He's going to say that they shouldn't bother, uh, uh, shouldn't have bothered having the first lockdown, certainly not the second and the third. Um, He's dangerously obsessed at this point, isn't he? He put out a 50, 51 or 52 tweet thread at the weekend uh, of what he was thinking. And I just thought to myself, what sort of person does that? <laughs> well, someone who's out for
2: revenge, I suspect. Uh, he's not He's not happy about the fact that, uh, that, that Boris Johnson uh, got rid of him. And uh, if, if we are to believe uh, half of what we read in the papers, he's... Hell bent on uh, on getting his own back, mm. but as you say, that there are all sorts of inconsistencies in in his account. He was, in a, in a very central position uh, at the time. I mean, he even sat in on on some of these sage meetings. Uh, he was the gu- he was the prime minister's chief advisor. So when he says you know, that Boris Johnson uh, mishandled it all and uh, it was all absolutely hopeless and incompetent, uh, you. Got to wonder what uh, what he thought he was doing at
1: the time. Yes, well, exactly. Because, I mean, we were told at the time many things, one of which uh, I was told, I don't know whether you heard this, was that, um, that Dominic Cummings was very much guided by the data. And it was really down to him that they started following the data and the science in the way that they did. So if he was talking to the sage people, surely he was either taking in what they were saying or he was against it. And it didn't strike me it didn't strike me as if, as if he was somebody who was against getting the advice from Sage. almost, almost the opposite, in fact.
2: No. And uh, what he's saying now would seem to be criticizing Sage and saying that they didn't react quickly enough and early enough mm. to, uh, to, to the coronavirus, um, which isn't a criticism of, of Boris Johnson at all, because in the early stages in last March. Uh, the prime minister followed the advice of uh, Chris Whitty and, and and Patrick Vallance pretty mm. much to the. I mean, later on there's a, there's a very different argument to be had about what happened in September when I think Sage were urging uh, a second lockdown and the prime minister and the chancellor were very reluctant to do it and and, and, and wouldn't do it in, mm. until November. Uh, but that's a completely different argument. So I mean, so far Dominic Cummings's argument uh, doesn't make sense and he's managed to distract everyone with this ridiculous nonsense about herd immunity.
1: Yes.
2: Uh, simple misunderstanding, which uh, should have been resolved at the time. And I thought most people did understand the difference between uh, pursuing herd immunity as a matter of policy, which nobody uh, nobody sensible would have done. Right. Uh, you know, what the government's position actually was, which was they thought there was nothing they could do to prevent the spread of the virus apart from try to control it and try and manage it. Yeah. And so what they that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to squash the sombrero. They were trying to protect the NHS. Yeah. Then they realised that actually if they if they took these really drastic measures of, of shutting people up in their homes, working from home, uh, abolishing all travel and, uh, and pubs and restaurants, then they could actually suppress the virus uh, pretty much altogether. And that's, that's when, what they switched to do.
1: Yeah, except they've never really done it. And he makes that point as well. But he is kind of in danger, isn't he, of becoming a bit of a cartoon figure because we're told that he's going to release some kind of document, you know, secretly uh, to the committee, and then they can decide whether to release it, because he doesn't want to get done under the Official Secrets Act, and it's all kind of you know, Dominic, just go and get a job somewhere you know, go and join a think tank, you know go and work for the European Union, do something else, stop bothering everybody, you know he's like that annoying guy at the party that comes up and goes, I've got this new plan you know, would you like to sign up to it, you know it's like a pyramid scheme, (laughs) He's a bit like that isn't it? It is, but the problem is, he is interesting, and uh
2: yeah, uh, but he's he's,
1: I, he's so interesting that he doesn't know how interesting he is. Therefore, yeah. he has he needs, in my view, an editor. He needs somebody like you or me to go to look. Dominic, forget that. Come with this. That's the important bit. That's all that anybody needs to hear, and the rest of it just don't go on about because you'll end up, you know, uh, losing the the wood for the trees.
2: I think that that is right, and I suspect that his uh, his appearance before the. The, the joint select committee is going to be a disappointment in that in in, in, in precisely that way that he will lose himself uh in the
1: in yeah. the tree yes um, so i mean all but, of these all of these journalists that i've been seeing over the weekend sort of slavering about his appearance and going this is going to be great it's what we've been waiting for it's what we've all wanted it just shows you how out of touch they all are because most people are going to go well so he's going to come and slag off the prime minister who he used to work with doesn't yeah. look it's not a good That's- look
2: Absolutely, and, and and as you said right at the start, Mike, his his view seems to be that if he'd been in charge, uh, which he was, yeah, <laughs> um, there would have been there would have been no lockdowns at all. Right. I mean, there would have been no first lockdown, no second lockdown. I mean, how does that work? I oh, mean, I know. what what is he actually suggesting that we? I mean, perhaps he's suggesting that we should have banned all international travel. Uh, in, I mean, in it sounds December. like that's what he's
1: suggesting. Funnily enough, that's what I was suggesting back in February. But you know, I'm not having a go at them for not doing it.
2: Yeah, but February was too late, Mike. It was. I mean, the, the virus was already here by then. I mean, and if he, if he's credibly suggesting that, then you know, maybe maybe I'll listen to him. But I mean, I mean, I'll listen to him anyway because mm. obviously, it'll be interesting. It'll be very interesting to see. Yeah. I mean, Greg Clark and Jeremy Hunt are the two uh, committee chairs who will be leading the uh, the interrogation, and they are both really really sharp. Also, um, oh, Jeremy uh, English-
1: Hunt. Uh, Jeremy Hunt hates Boris Johnson, so you know which way that's going to go
2: well yeah but he's also he's also interested in finding out the truth i think
1: which, uh, well, yeah but it which, depends on which order you put those two things in I would suggest that the hatred of Boris Johnson will go first uh, and then he'll <laughs> so he'll his truth his truth will be all about as much damage as, as possible uh, that can be that can be laid upon the Downing Street's front door because he wants to be in there and he wishes that he was instead
2: well I think, uh, yeah but the damage has to be factually based and, uh, and so far I think Dominic Cummings's account is so self-contradictory yeah And also,
1: a bit like like what you were saying about Keir Starmer, you know, the fact that we are now kind of coming out of it, the fact that things are returning to normal, people are much less bothered by what happened a year ago, I think, than they are about what's happening now. And so what they want now is to see what's on the front page of of some of the papers this morning, that possibly pubs will be reopened even quicker, that certainly June 21st doesn't look as though now it's going to be a problem. Um, And in fact, people want to go on holiday. They're not really that interested in looking back and wondering whether we did the right thing.
2: Well, I, there's a minority who are very, very interested in doing that. I mean, because uh, uh, and, and possibly, yeah, and they all work for the Guardian. Well, no, I mean, some of them are the families of, of people who died. And uh, I don't,
1: I don't but, agree with that, John. I have not heard from anyone. You know, some people have had terrible tragedies happen to them. Many people have had terrible tragedies happen to them outside of the covid sphere. Where people have been yeah. diagnosed with cancer four stages of cancer because they couldn't get diagnosed a year ago there's all manner of people with all manner of stories but i don't believe this narrative that some of the media put out there all that the families are all terribly interested uh, in what the government should have done to save the lives of their loved ones because i don't I just don't think that's the thing
2: well i think I think there is a uh, uh, there is a minority who who are uh, who are very critical of the government and want to see uh, want to see, want to see justice done in in their eyes, and that means holding a public inquiry and sending Boris Johnson to jail. If possible. Yeah, but that's ridiculous. I mean, that, no, that, not- that,
1: those those are the as I say, the kind of people that write for the Guardian uh, who are trying to make it into a political witch hunt, which it shouldn't be. Because no matter who was in charge of the country people would have died in the same way that people have died in every other country in the world most of them over the age of 82 most of them uh, either with uh, underlying health conditions or in care homes most of them uh, who were sick uh, under the age of 80 were survived and, and and are still with us yeah
2: no I mean I I, I agree with you although I think you do you, you do have to respect the fact that uh, a lot of people died prematurely the average, Life expectancy of those who died was about 10 years. Uh, and that is that is very sad for, for yeah, a lot but of people. Yeah, but
1: honestly, it's sad. Of course it's sad, but I, I honestly don't believe that most people in that situation blame an individual or a government for the fact that they're, they're, their parents died. I mean, why are they blaming the Chinese for coming up with the virus in the first place?
2: Well, absolutely. I mean, the, the, but the problem is that if fewer people could have died, then I think there will always be, uh, those who will want to uh, want to criticise the government for,
1: of course, for, no. Listen, I don't. I don't doubt that there are people out there. All I'm saying is, I doubt their motives are are actually anything other than political. Is all I'm saying.
2: Well, I think, yeah. I mean, may, may, maybe. I mean, I think, I think, I think you're right. I think I, you know, I'm not in favour of, uh, of of a public inquiry just for the sake of it. I no. Think if it's if it's if it's just for the for, for, for people to for the media to get their teeth into into Boris Johnson on the on the grounds that he's a war criminal or something. Yeah. Then I think that's completely pointless. If it's to learn lessons for how to deal with uh, with the next threat. And that's where uh, you know Dominic Cummings again manages to contradict himself because he says we should have prepared ourselves not for not for a flu pandemic, but for some kind of unknown unknown disease. Um you know, how are yeah. we supposed to do that? I don't know but no, I mean it's he, the same
1: I mean we we'll go let's, let's go full circle back to Tony Blair I mean all the same people who called Tony Blair a war criminal they don't care about war they don't care about crime they just don't like Tony Blair you know they were not calling no, Saddam Hussein a war criminal despite the fact that he gassed most of his own <laughs> people you know
2: Absolutely absolutely right and uh, I'm afraid there's some of that same uh, that same impulse behind the uh, the criticism mm. of Boris Johnson now I'm obviously not as as much a fan of Boris Johnson as I was a fan of Tony Blair. Well, that, wouldn't be, so, that
1: couldn't be possible. You couldn't be a fan of both people in the same way, John. I mean, that wouldn't be right. Let me ask you one final question, John. How much trouble are the BBC in, in your view?
2: Uh, no, I mean, not a huge amount, to be honest. I think I think there's a bit of opportunistic uh, government uh, saber-rattling to try and uh, scare them into uh, I- into being a bit more careful. Uh, but, I mean, this is absolutely classic. I mean, and, and I'm sorry to go back to Tony Blair, but, I mean, th- <laughs> this is the BBC... Unable to criticise itself quickly enough and uh, and thoroughly enough. I mean, they did the same on, on on the on the Andrew Gilligan story on Iraq, and that ended up with uh, with losing a chair a chair and a director general, mm. uh, and they failed to 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 subject Martin Bashir's journalism to proper criticism uh, quickly enough and and to make amends for it. And you know, in the end, they actually and ended up rehiring. Well him. that's
1: the thing that I think most people find extraordinary that, that not so much that you know they missed what he did at the start then acknowledged it but then after acknowledging that he cheated and he forged uh, and he lied they rehired him as ethics well, correspondent. This, no, I well, mean you could well, not make it up. Yeah. No,
2: I mean I think I think there is something deeply wrong with the, with with the BBC in in that respect but on the other hand I think the BBC has one one its its argument for the license fee. And therefore, is is safe for the moment. I think the, the government might try to use this uh, as a stick to beat beat it with. But if you read Oliver Dowden's article uh, today, it's pretty tame stuff, cliche written uh, uh, a, a bit of a bit of stirring. Well, you know, I mean,
1: without without wishing to reinvent the uh, the wheel, I mean, the Jeffrey Howe quote I think suits Oliver Dowden well, a bit like being savaged by dead sheep.
2: <laughs> well, exactly, and the idea that the, the Martin Bashir's failures as 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 a journalist means that the BBC is out of touch with. Uh with people who voted leave in, in in the Brexit referendum. I mean, I think that's a bit of a jump.
1: It is part. a bit of a jump, but it's all part of the same problem, I think. And I think they're in quite a bit of trouble. But John, listen, I've got to run because we're very late and I'm in a bit of trouble now with my producer uh, for keeping you on for so long. But thank you very much, as ever, for talking to us. John Rental, Chief Political Commentator at The Independent. Um, he doesn't think the BBC's in a lot of trouble. I differ from that. I think they are an immense amount of trouble and I'm going to keep chasing them down. Uh, I was calling for them to be shut down on Friday. I don't have a change in my view whatsoever. I think there it is. Graceful organisation. Martin Bashir is an absolute horror show. Uh, he made some meaty mouth sort of attempt at an apology with an interview in the Sunday Times at the weekend. We'll-
3: the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
1: Let's talk to Angela Levin, a Royal Biographer, because it's been an extraordinary few days uh, ever since Friday when we last spoke about the royal family, uh, the way that Prince William had made a statement about what Martin Bashir and the BBC had done, the fact that uh, Princess Diana's brother, Earl Spencer, had more or less blamed the BBC for her death. An extraordinary weekend, made more extraordinary, of course, by more revelations from uh, Montecito, California, and Prince Harry. Um, Angela, very good morning to you. Good morning. So, um, I don't know where to begin, really. Um, I'm still waiting for the other shoe to drop, if you like, on the BBC front, because as much as uh, we've now seen Tony Hall's resignation from the National Gallery, as much as we've seen a few sort of deck chairs moved around inside the BBC, Prince William has called for a proper investigation. Surely that will have to happen, won't it?
4: Yes, I think it will absolutely have to now. You can't really do something like that to the second Earl. Of uh, the throne and and not respond. Mm. But it's very interesting that they're not turning up people to make any sort of comments. Andrew Ma commented on this yesterday in his programme and he was quite critical of the BBC, which was brave really because he's employed by them. Mm. And they weren't on this morning on the Today programme. So it you know, you would blame any politician or any celebrity who had something hanging over them um, for not coming on and saying what cowards they are and how terrible it is and be quite rude about it. But they're not sending anyone. You'd think somebody could say something, you know, middle of the ground, yes. not committing themselves, but actually make a comment, for goodness sake. Well,
1: exactly right. And also make out as though there is something going on, looking into all manner of different things, which the Lord Dyson report kind of pointed out. For example, why was he rehired at uh, in 2016 when, when it was already known that he had used subterfuge and, and, and sort of, you know, disingenuous motivation for getting her on in the first place?
4: Yes, quite right. Um, and they knew that it's obviously illegal to forge documents and yet he came on as a sort of religious editor. I mean, yeah. that's ironic, if, if anything is. Yeah. Um, and yesterday his comments about um, about himself were just wriggling out. Mm. He hasn't accepted what he's done, and um, saying and he's only thirty-two. Well, uh, when it happened, well, I think somebody of seven would know that to forge a document wasn't a very good idea. No. Um, and he said, oh, for goodness sake, think about our wonderful relationship. That's irrelevant, too. She mm. was a wonderful um woman who was in a terrible state and the fact that she got on or pretended to get on has got nothing to do with no, it. Exactly so- right and also I mean he's
1: now under pressure we're talking about Martin Bashir here for those who've just joined us he's now under pressure as well for the Michael Jackson interview that he did for ITV because he went to ITV immediately after having really done so well with that particular interview um, and the fact that he lied to her and that she didn't know that does not mean that, therefore, that she was his friend. She thought she was his friend. It's a bit like having a friend that lies to you about everything and you don't realise that they're lying to you until the end.
4: Yes, and then you go off them big time. Well, exactly. she had that chance. Poor woman. I mean, her whole life was um, changed because of that interview, actually, Mm. and believing what he had said, that all the people who were guarding her were, in fact, being paid, hence the... um, bank accounts yes there were people's names there which was going to an organization and and was designed to prove to her that they were being paid from another source to to um and also say,
1: if, if you don't mind me saying so angela the other source was alleged to be this very company that i work for which was also made up yes i mean incredible well, i mean yeah. this guy should be rotting in a prison cell somewhere shouldn't he
4: well, I think he's got to be charged. It is a criminal offence, and the fact that lots of years have gone by mm. doesn't make a difference. It still is an offence. And also, the the way that um, her life did change. She didn't have proper people looking after her, so she was in a car where the, where where she wasn't secure. Um, people weren't with her in 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 Paris, mm. and. I think her whole life might have been very different indeed she couldn't trust anyone and the effect on her sons i mean william has been brave and tried to make something of his life and indeed has harry is just absolutely destroyed by it mm. um, and, and it was very a- interesting i thought <laughs> the other the
1: other the other story of the, of the of the weekend that we need to discuss is is the story in the mail on sunday where the queen has supposedly been very upset by harry's uh, latest Pronouncements about not only the fact that his own father um, was a terrible father, but that the reason he was a terrible father was because he didn't understand how to parent, because his own parents were so awful. Meaning the Queen.
4: Yes, incredible. I mean thing. that is, it's heartbreaking actually, and to do that when H is ninety-five, B is the Queen of England and highly regarded woman throughout the world, um, and she has lost her much-loved husband of over 70 years, uh, just a couple of months ago. I I think he's actually really unwell, and he doesn't know what he's saying, and he's overwhelmed by his life. I mean, this is um, it.
1: I mean, did we not think at some point that somebody needs to get a grip of Prince Harry and say to him, look, all of this, um, you know, self-help all of this kind of uh, mediation, all of this therapy that you seem to think is a good thing, is actually really, really damaging.
4: Yeah, I don't think he'll believe that, I'm afraid. I think what he, he needs is lots of love. Mm. I, I sound sentimental. He loves it, he needs lots of care, and he le- needs to be reassured that he's okay. Um, Megan needs to reassure him she's not going to commit suicide. He thinks she might die any minute right. because... We'll be what sort her. of a woman, right,
1: what sort of a woman would say to her husband, the only reason I didn't kill myself was because I couldn't deprive you of me? I mean, really?
4: Well, also, what's even worse is that she was six months pregnant with Archie. Yeah. So uh, there would have been a loss of two people then. Um, but it's very questionable that two weeks after that, she went off to New York to have um, a baby shower yes. celebration. It cost an absolute fortune, mm. and all her friends were there for a few days. Now, I don't think anyone who is suicidal—I'm not a therapist—but it doesn't make sense if someone is so depressed they want to kill themselves that they leap up to feeling fantastic and go off to mm. America and have a huge party. Yeah. Um, something's very wrong there. I think also there's, because-
1: I don't think there's any question that, shall we say, to be on the kind side of the argument. Um, she would appear to be rather exploiting the fact that that he's very much in love with her. She appears to be using him uh, to become more famous than she was before she met him, because there's no doubt that that's the case. Um, and that in the end, they're making money out of all of this.
4: Yes, well, I think it's terrible to make money out of your mother's death and walking behind her children. Her, her her basket yes um that's just too terrible for words but the other thing that's absolutely shocking to me is that to allege that it was uh racism that because diana was going out with dodie fired who's not white skinned was not white. well do you know i would
1: never ever thought of Dodi fired as a man of color to be honest until i read it uh because it came from the mouth of prince harry and I mean were an outrageously ridiculous thing to say he was well, he was didn't... the son of an egyptian businessman you know, I'm I'm not sure what what qualifies as somebody of color, but I'm I don't I've never referred to people from Egypt as people of color. I mean, it's just a bizarre thing to say, isn't it?
4: Well, it seems that someone set an agenda for him, and he's following that, and um, he's just collapsing and allowing us to see him when he was in a session with a therapist. Mm. Was also I found. That, oh yeah, we have
1: got to do this now, aren't uh, we? We're gonna sit like this. This is what we do. Yeah.
4: Yes, I mean, to do that and close his eyes and let the world see, I thought he'd, he'd stripped himself naked in his mind and everyone could see him at his most vulnerable. I don't it's know how the therapist...
1: I think it's very sad. I feel, I really feel for the guy. I really think that, you know, he needs to to find someone who can put him um, at rest, who can put him at ease, who can sort of soothe his, his worried brow, because obviously that's not what's happening in California. He's being made to look more and more ridiculous with every passing day.
4: I don't think a therapist should have allowed him to do that. No. I think she... I mean, I don't know.
1: I mean, I don't know of any proper psychiatrist that would say to anyone, here's what I think you should do. Um, You should sit through a therapy session. You should film it. uh, You should talk about it on film, on camera. You should allow everyone to see what you're thinking. You should bare your soul to the world. You should continue to take money for exploiting your own mental health problem. I don't know of any psychiatrist with any form of, of ethics that would suggest that.
4: Yes, I, I, I totally agree with you. I mean he look he nearly he really looks as if he needs a lot of care. He yeah. should stop being a celebrity, you stop trying to be woke, stop trying to come up with the yeah. words that he believes his wife wants him to say yeah. and just actually take a while to recover. But I do think he is very, very unwell. I mm. got terrible shock seeing him like yeah. that. I
1: think it's awful I think Andrew you're absolutely right thank you very much for talking to us Andrew Levin real biographer
4: I think we should be
1: worried about Prince Harry I really do I think he needs care I think he needs attention and I think what he really needs is to get out of the limelight for a while away from a camera away from the microphone away from the people who are exploiting him and get back to normal because that's what he needs morning with Mike Graham Talk Radio Now it is Monday morning, so let's say a very good morning to Mr. Peter Hitchens. Peter, very good morning to you. How are you? Morning. Well, uh, what can I say? Uh, Let's talk a bit about the BBC, first of all, because uh, you were talking about uh, your kind of uh, commensurate um, colleague, Mr. Andrew Marr, who you used to write a column in the same newspaper as uh, when you and he were considered to be sort of I suppose opposite sides of a particular political spectrum, um, and you made a couple of interesting asides about that. But also, what do you make of the way that they've been conducting themselves since Friday, okay. since the whole Lord Dyson report kind of came out and was and was uh, was produced into a panorama in, uh, investigation?
3: Well, is, is a completely out of control institution. It, it reminds me, of, above all things, of the medieval church. Mm. Hugely powerful, impossible to criticise, uh, in, in charge of all its of all its own self-discipline, effectively running its own courts, deciding its own uh, its own priorities, deciding whether it's done wrong or right. You remember the Bashir business was actually exposed, first of all, in the Mail on Sunday in April 1996, mm. a quarter of a century ago. Yeah. And it's taken that long for anything serious to be done or acknowledged about, about the, the the whole way in which Martin Bashir and indeed many executives behave. And that I, this isn't an issue particularly close to my heart, but it shows you just how unresponsive and uncontrollable an organisation this is. Now, I often write about the BBC because I, 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 it seems to me to show all the time a blatant bias towards the metropolitan liberal elite in everything it says and does. Uh, but I also subject myself to what an ordinary citizen would have to do if he wanted to complain or she wanted to complain. i, I put in complaints about programs which are particularly outrageous. Mm. And the, First of all, you hit the sort of spongy out, outer surface, uh, which is run by Capita. Uh, where your complaint is basically bunged back at you with the note saying tough luck buster yeah and then if you if you know enough to get past that and complain about the way your complaint has been treated you eventually get to a body called the executive complaints unit (laughs) uh, which will eventually uh, tell you to shut off Uh, and after that you can go to ofcom which will say exactly what the bbc says not surprising as we now learn that uh, that Ofcom certainly until recently had had a major BBC person in charge of regulating the BBC. Yeah. So it, there is there is talk about judge and jury in your own case. There isn't anything anybody can do about it. Whatever it does, whether it whether it's biased or behaves badly or stupidly or wrongly or incompetently, there isn't any any way of controlling it. Well there's only one thing you can do about an institution that's become that bad and that overmighty. And that is to cut it down to size. The other thing is it's legally bound to do something it doesn't do. And the charter and agreement under which it gets the license fee obliges it to be impartial on on major issues of controversy. It just isn't. No, Any serious government would would compile a report on the number of times it's failed in that duty and say, right, well, in in that case, either you correct this uh, within a set period of time, or the license fee goes and we'll set up a new organization with a charter uh, which, will, which will replace you, uh, which is often the only way mm. to deal with, uh, with, with with things of this kind, just to replace them with something else or something better. I think we should have a national broadcaster. I actually believe the license fee used to be, I'm not sure it, it can anymore, used to be quite a good way of raising money for such a broadcaster. But we don't have a national broadcaster. Uh, we have an Islington broadcaster. Yes. But also, I really don't see why the people of Sunderland should pay for a and
1: Broadcast. No, quite. And this is the thing, isn't it? Because I mean, even in, in our lifetimes, the idea of the BBC, when I was growing up and watching it uh, in the 1960s, was a very different idea to the one that we now are presented with. Because in those days, you had BBC... I remember when BBC 2 started, you know, it was like a revolution. Suddenly there was two channels. It was like, my goodness me, isn't it great? And then uh, they sort of just grew exponentially into this huge digital operation. You know, studios, uh, the that they run in which they can com- uh, they commission Vast, uh, vastly expensive costume dramas, you know, they they, they they consume money in a way that no other broadcaster does because they don't have any restrictions on how much they can spend. You know, they can do things that, that news at, uh, where I work can't do and where Associated Newspapers where you work can't do because the the accountants would say, well, that's simply not viable. You just can't do that. And they've got all these radio stations, they've got the internet now, they've got BBC World, they've got BBC News Channel, they've got BBC 3, which has meant to have been shut down but somehow still is running, (laughs) BBC Four. I mean, it just goes on and on.
3: Yes, and the thing is that, given how much they have to spend on it, it really ought to be a lot better, ought not it?
1: Yeah, well, yes. I mean, there's not much of it that's any good.
3: With with any one of those channels, or with with BBC News. I'm a news-hungry person. I used Mm. to watch... Uh, all the news bulletins that came along, and listened to all the radio ones as well. I can't be bothered to watch BBC News most of the time anymore. After about after about ninety seconds, you think we'll just drivel. Yeah, uh, it's propaganda in most cases, and you just turn it off and mm. try and find some other source of, of, of information. It isn't good. That's the other thing. A lot of it used to be good. The output, uh, the drama, and the, the the comedy and the documentaries were good, mm. uh, and now they're not. Uh, but th- there isn't anybody there to say these things aren't any good anymore, and it's a closed world, and, and it's extraordinary. It is I've often said that the people in the BBC are, are as conscious as a goldfish is of being in a bowl that they are biased, mm. or that, that there's nothing wrong with them. It's ridiculous Andrew Marr complained at some Scottish book festival last week that he he felt that he was constrained by the BBC and he couldn't speak out. No. I I couldn't help but remember... <laughs> Uh, in the bizarre period when Rosie Boycott, uh, possibly the most unlikely editor the Dead Express ever had, bless her, uh, was in charge, yeah, yeah there were both columnists on that paper. Right.
1: Well, you managed to survive. You managed to survive her editorship. I was fired.
3: Although I got on. I got on very
1: well. Yeah, I, I got. I was fired by Rosie Boycott for not being a woman.
3: Oh, well, I suppose. Um, I mean, <laughs> uh, uh, this didn't happen to me. What, what did I do wrong? But um, I can only sympathize. But uh, no, I, she, she, she was always very nice to me. And I, 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 I liked her and I continue to like her. But the, 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 there it was. There was Andrew Marr running this column He once devoted an entire uh, page to attacking my position on the euro. Right. Uh, and at the same time, he was writing columns for The Observer. Uh, which were perhaps even more Blairite than the ones he was writing for mm. the Daily Express. And, and the thing is that here I am, I can barely get on the BBC now because I'm such a, 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 a bad person. Yes. As far as they, they and I, mean, I hear from pe- people I know in the BBC that I, my name has come up for various things and been immediately vetoed without <laughs> for argument. This, this is the reaction which comes. Uh, but Andrew is, 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 the, is the, in charge of one of the most important programmes on the corporation. And how is it that he is impartial, and I'm not, when both of us were taking strongly partial positions publicly in a national newspaper, at, what, 30 years ago? Yeah. Has he undergone some strange uh, re-impartialization process? Was there an operation he had to undergo? Yeah. I don't believe so. It's just, it's, it's just yet another illustration of the fact that BBC impartiality is complete rubbish. It doesn't exist. The BBC is an organisation of the left, and it has been for many, many years. Yes, decades.
1: because they also talk about Andrew Marr in and his sort of hushed tones that he came <laughs> from the world of newspapers. Therefore, he's, yeah. a pro- he's a proper journalist, you know, unlike you, who also came from the world of newspapers <laughs> and is a proper journalist.
3: Yes, yeah, so of course, it, it, they have a problem. They could say, oh, yeah, but Peter Hitchens, he was only from the sort of knuckles-brushing-the-ground tabloid press, except so was Andrew Marr.
1: <laughs> I know, it really is quite yeah, progress. and I were
3: both on the same knuckles-brushing-the-ground tabloid yeah. So that one won't work either. I, but, but I don't i don't in any way uh, denigrate Andrew's uh, journalistic career and achievements. They're, they're considerable. Uh, but, you know, I, I could, could point to a fair amount of stuff on my own part. So, no, it's not as if I haven't done anything. But it's so obvious that the reason, like people like people like me, don't get anywhere near anything important in the BBC and the important jobs in the BBC, the presenters' jobs, is because of my politics. Mm. And that's
1: absolutely right, because it turns out that as they are clearly um, of a mind to try and avoid any massive change it seems to me that they're very good at kicking things into the long grass you know I mean all sorts I mean Prince William himself has asked for an investigation of one kind or another you would think uh, that the parliamentary committees would want to have at least a session with the BBC chief executives uh, and the board of management and all the rest of it to ask them how this could have happened um uh, even if they were just going through the motions. But, of course, Sir Keir Starmer, who was very keen on uh, launching dawn raids against journalists uh, from various tabloid newspapers from the Murdoch empire, um, seems to have gone very quiet on this one. He doesn't seem to care so much about the BBC.
3: Well, Parliament has a difficulty. You really don't want the government controlling a major broadcasting organisation, uh, directly or indirectly. And I can see there's a difficulty yeah. there in how far it can go, which is why I concentrate so much on the whole basis of the BBC's constitution. Uh, which is easy to read and find, which is the, the charter and uh, an agreement, which is the basis on which the licence fee is collected, and all the government needs to say is, "No, you're not doing this. Mm-hmm. You're simply not. Uh, you're, you're not. Uh, and Evidence is easily produced. You're, you're not on on uh, on uh, on man-made climate change, on the COVID issue, on uh, almost any major issue of public policy, uh, from drug legalization to." To, to abortion, the BBC is clearly partial on many, many major issues of, uh, of public controversy. Uh, it's, uh, the, the views that it holds are perfectly reasonable views which ought to be expressed and given a platform. But they what they don't do is provide a, a platform to those who have different mm. opinions to theirs. And, that's, uh, and that is a failure, a straightforward failure, to observe the Charter and Agreement. While they should be, as I say, given time explain to them, these poor goldfish going round and round in their bowl, what it is that they are doing and, that, and why it is wrong. And they should be given, I suspect, a year to put it right. And if they won't put it right, then the, the, then a new organisation should be set up to mm-hmm. fulfil the whole idea of having a, a, a British broadcasting corporation. It's not as if it's like the railways. I mean, the equipment could, is, is all paid for by the licence payer. It should simply, simply be transferred to a new yes. organisation, which was willing to behave itself. I'm I'm not one of those who wants to to defund the BBC and not have any public service broadcasting. It seems to me, if you look at the United States, that that big private broadcasters are in general just as much uh, leaning to the left uh, as the BBC, and that wouldn't be a solution. Well, they either. are
1: now, but they didn't used to be. I mean, I oh, no, lived, no, when no, I when I lived in the states back in the sort of you know 80s and early 90s. NBC, CBS, um, and ABC were pretty straightforward news. Certainly, as news organizations, they were pretty. I didn't
3: think so, I'm afraid. You really I, did I, you not? I would switch on the nightly news with Peter Jennings or whoever it was. Yeah. I know. Here it comes. Uh, but but uh, perhaps I've always been more savagely right wing than mm. you, and, and more sensitive to these things. But I I, I never thought so. I, and the 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 comedy and drama output uh, was similarly tended in in the. Generally liberal cultural yeah. direction. I, I, I don't think that you can really make an argument that, 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 that privately owned broadcasting is axiomatically going to be more conservative. The public service broadcasting, it, it, it's not borne out.
1: In, well, I in, suppose in, not, except for the fact that now the most successful network in the US is Fox, and Fox became very much more the opposite of all of those things but, that you're describing.
3: Fox, I, I'm sorry, but I think Fox is a caricature of what, of, of, of what it ate, if, if you if you have to have, I mean, my, my view is that the, is an, any broadcaster to be serious has to be adversarial inside, and say It has to allow both used to
1: no, I agree with that. I totally agree with that. Well, Andrew, Andrew Neil, funny enough, said the same thing. He said he'd just been to America. I think it was a couple of years ago, and he said I watched a, 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 a political talk show on NBC where they had four people who hated Donald Trump all discussing how they hated him, and then yeah. uh, on Fox they had four other people who all loved Trump and discussing well, how they loved him. He said, "Well, how about you put the two together and make a proper show."
3: Well, of course, and that's what that's that's what they didn't do. But I thought if if Fox had just said right, well, the, all the others are to the left and we're to, and we're to the right. I think they sh- they should have they could have set a far better example and behaved and continued to behave much more responsibly. I thought I think I always thought Fox was a caricature of what a proper conservative.
1: Well, it may, that may be your view, but it is. But what I'm saying is, it doesn't. It doesn't follow your example that private companies cannot be conservative in the way that they broadcast because they do. And whether you don't like what they do is would another matter. S-
3: would you say that Fox was particularly socially or morally conservative? I, say would, I would stupid, say yes, it is. Much, it is, yeah. much more a say... Thatcherite or Reaganite, but I, don't, I, I wouldn't have thought it was an, an influence for moral conservatism much.
1: Well, it certainly created uh, a, a, a moral conservative movement and, and, and augmented it to the point where Donald Trump was elected to the White House
3: on that platform. He certainly isn't a moral conservative, is he? I'm just looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> I I, so I, this, is, this is where the confusion lies. I mean, I, I, well, maybe, people,
1: maybe I'm not a very moral conservative a either. Of of maybe that's so a
3: Reagan people Reagan and Thatcher to be conservatives when, in fact, they were economic and social liberals. And uh, never did a conservative thing in their, in, in, in their long lives, as far as I can see. And that, that confusion has been a, a, one of the most damaging confusions around because it's allowed people to accept uh, political parties and other things as conservative, which is simply not. Mm. Uh, and and uh, then be disappointed when they find that the world is pretty much as it was before. Well, maybe they, maybe
1: moral conservatism has had its day, and maybe there. That is no may such be. Thing.
3: I I was accused of being a populist on Twitter this morning, and I replied that I am actually and always have been an unpopulist. <laughs> uh, it may well, well, I, I think what well, I, well, I believe in can't ever possibly happen. No, uh, but not. But uh, I still think it would be better if it did. I'm going to carry on saying yes. that it maybe well, eventually it'll come round
1: again. Speaking of conservatives who are, who are not morally conservative, uh, let's talk about Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson, because on Wednesday, I don't know whether you feel that this is an important uh, point. I, in I, it goes
3: right. It goes right by me. It's one of those controversies of the week just on, on the menu, which no. I think, oh, actually, I'd rather have the fish and chips, if you wouldn't mind. I, I just, it doesn't do anything for me. Dominic Cummings but no it's versus versus Al well, how would
1: you describe him what, how, a, how, how would you describe I I how thought. would you describe Dominic Cummings in conservative um, uh, in a conservative manner
3: Well I've seen no sign of any conservatism in Dominic Cummings. Uh, but I'm afraid I was slightly blinded to any, any uh, joys and wonders he might have by the first time I met him, when I conceived such a strong dislike for him that I've never really been able to see him straight ever since. But no, I don't um, I, I don't think that he is what you would call a moral and social conservative. Mm. I don't think he's his driving force. No. And the the, the, the the way in which we left the European Union very much under his, uh, under his leadership and guidance is very much a, a, an ultra-liberal free trade, mm. Uh, Let's have lots of Australian beef uh, departures from uh, from the European Union, rather than the the one that I wanted, which would have restored our national sovereignty.
1: Yes, I'm not all that comfortable with those who paint him as this kind of great architect of society and, you know, a man that should be listened to in all matters. I'm not sure that he's not just a bit of an (laughs) oddball, to be honest.
3: You, you may be honest. You, I'm, so, I'm so blinded by, 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 by personal prejudice. I, I no, well, good. Well, let's let's, let's well.
1: finish up with, uh, with your piece about inflation, which I found fascinating because, of course, many people won't remember what it was like back in those days when you suddenly found yourself with equity in a home that was worth less than the money you'd put into it uh, and a mortgage rate that was running at 15%. Um, and you fear uh, that maybe inflation and, and crazy inflation may return.
3: I think it, I can't see how it can't return. Uh, because so much fake money has been created now, people say this has been done before in what's been called quantitative easing (QE). But in that case, the money was kept pretty much in the banking system. What's happened wow. with, the, with with Rishi Sunak is that he, he he's he's got a dump truck and, and and spread money right throughout the economy, and particularly in the, in the pockets of people who have, for the most part, in the in the in the past few months, been unable to spend it. Uh, but it's it's actually leaking into the real economy where people buy consumer goods and spend on holidays. And when that happens and the, the goods available are, are, remain pretty much the, on the, the same level and there's more money chasing them, there's only one thing that else prices go up. Mm. Uh, and I think that it's pretty much inevitable. I, if you've been foolish enough, to abide by the rules of the previous centuries and and save for a rainy day then you've been punished by by self-inflation for many years because no interest is paid on savings now Uh, so they 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 are debauched year by year you you lose a huge chunk of them in an inflation which never seems to feature in any figures Mm. that's another thing inflation figures are designed by governments and they're partly designed to prevent uh, themselves getting large pay demands from public service unions so they they don't want the, those inflation figures to show an awful lot of things which mm. go on, which is why I joked at the weekend that the inflation figures seem to be based on the prices of imported trousers, buttons and custard. Uh, rather than well, they the do. Figures. They do
1: seem to and move things in and out of the so-called basket of stuff. Well, don't
3: they? It, it's not just what they put in the basket. It's the weight they give it. And it just seems to me, and I, you, know, you go into the shop and you buy a, a, a bottle of wine or a loaf of bread or whatever it happens to be. It's more expensive now by a considerable amount than mm. it was a couple of years ago. But the inflation figures, oh, inflation's only run about 2%. Right. Well, if inflation was at 2%, why has this bottle of wine gone up by three quid? Right. Uh you know, it, Which is a good deal more than 2% what it, what, uh, on, on top of what mm. it used to cost. And I, I, I find this a game again. the There doesn't seem to be any real relationship between the official figures and what I no. experience in life. But isn't, I, isn't that kind but of... I, of wine... relationship, it, it won't be possible to hide it anymore. Yeah. I mean, with... with the, with massaged figures. All, all politi- this is Hitchens' first law of politics. All politically sensitive figures are massaged. Mm. They, they just are, you can assume it. And yeah. this has very much been the case in the recent COVID affair as well. And, and there are many people who are extremely skilled at massaging figures. And unless you're very suspicious, it will go past you. Yes, but this, this is, I is think. What, this this what is what happens, and it's happening with inflation, but sooner or later it becomes impossible to pretend mm. to people. The value of the pound in their pocket, as Harold Wilson so merrily put it, is is remaining the same. Yeah. Well, I mean, all
1: you've got to do is look at something like council tax, where, you know, a few years ago, you were paying several hundred pounds less a year than you are now. And it's sort of just kind of crept up and up and up. And everything has crept up and up and up. I can't think of anything that's actually got cheaper,
3: really. Um, I think sorry, imported clothes got cheaper for a while, you imported electronic goods. And that, that held. The, the, the I mean, rate. televisions
1: yeah. have got cheaper, I would say. Because <laughs> for ex- I mean, I remember buying my first, you know, flat screen TV back in 2005. I've just been fired by the Daily Mirror, and I thought this is a good time to buy flat screen TV. Uh, and, I, and it was a thirty-two inch flat screen television from Sony, I think, bought for a thousand pounds. You know, you can now buy one of those for about one hundred and fifty quid.
3: Well, yeah, I, there, there are things which go down. By the way, you weren't fired from the Daily Mirror for being a, not being a woman, were you?
1: No, no, I was fired from the Daily Mirror because Piers Morgan was fired ahead of me, and I was thought to be one of his cohorts. So they oh moved, so they moved me out very sharpish. I'm afraid. <laughs>
3: Well, I'm not sure which is worse, really. <laughs> I know, it's <laughs> there are true. Things, there, are, there are some things whose prices have fallen, and sometimes you know, the price of oil falls. It's not doing that at the moment, and, and that will have a, a, a fairly considerable impact. But in general, the upward trend in the cost of oil, so particularly now that it's fairly verging on compulsory mm. uh, to put your children through university, which many people used not to do, the cost of doing that, it's colossal. You say, all right, so you you, you you borrow a lot of the money to do it. Even so, yeah. uh, the parents of, of children at university do incur costs, and they go up all the yeah. time. Those universities are fantastically greedy businesses, as far as I can see. So there's that, too, has entered into, into, into people's lives. Mm. But the, the the real thing is that the other things, the price of houses is now so ridiculous. I don't know anybody, because I don't know any, any billionaires, I don't know anybody who could afford... Uh, the, the house they currently live in, mm. uh, if they had to pay for it now. Yes. Uh, the prices are absurd. So how are these prices maintained at this level? They would maintain so because houses are an asset and therefore people would stuff their money into them to try mm. and protect it from the inflation we pretend isn't going on. Well, tell me what that means.
1: Yes. It's a fascinating thing, actually. We must talk about this some more because, unfortunately, we're out of time. Peter, good to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Peter Hitchens, Mail on Sunday columnist, uh, with a lot of very interesting uh, arguments to make, as he always has, uh, and lots of very interesting things to say. We're going to talk about many of those things coming up. Uh, If you live in a house that you could now afford to buy, perhaps you can prove him wrong. I'm not sure you do, though.
3: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Let's
1: talk to Hannah Woolnow, Chair of the British Dental Association's UK Council. Hannah, very good morning to you. Good morning. We've been talking for a long time um, in on this show, particularly about the troubles people are having getting to see a GP and how, you know, while some GP surgeries are operating normally, a lot of them are not. Um, this doesn't appear to be, to me anyway, a sort of COVID-related problem. It seems to just be a dentist-related problem.
5: Yeah, I mean, the, the NHS dental services have been historically underfunded. This is not a new thing and it's not just covid but COVID has really exacerbated an existing issue that we've got with regard to the underfunding of this service. So the government historically have only paid for enough dentistry to service about half the population of the UK. Mm. So that's the amount of funding that's available, and it's got to be divvied up between everybody. Now, obviously, with COVID, that's really affected the efficiency of dental practices because we've got extra time between appointments and things like that. So it has really had an impact on how many patients can be seen And there's just simply not enough dentistry for everybody. But when you say funding, what does that funding cover? So this is uh, the government commissioning services from dental practices. So you have to have a contract to be able to provide NHS dental services in the UK. You can't set up shop and open your doors. So every dental practice that offers NHS dentistry have a limited pot of dentistry they can offer on the NHS which is why we often see some people are being offered private care as an alternative now that's because there is a limit to the amount of NHS dentistry that is available and that's controlled by the government that's the But
1: but what's the funding based on is it based on number of patients is it a particular amount per patient how does it work
5: It's uh, so the way that the contract works in the UK is that that dentists get paid per unit of dental activity. So if you do a checkup, that's one unit of dental activity. If you do dentures for a patient, then that's 12 units of dental activity and you're limited to the number of units per year. So that's how it's worked out.
1: So how's it worked out per patient? So, for example, if I was to be an NHS patient, how many units would I be expecting to get for free? Because I don't remember the last time I went to an NHS dentist, didn't have to pay.
5: No, so there's, there's no free dentistry for the majority of the adult population. So children are free uh, and there are uh, a selection of um, people benefits. On, people on benefits are
1: free. Pregnant mothers are free, is my understanding. Yeah,
5: yeah. pregnant women, women within a year of having a baby. There are certain benefits, things like tax credits, um, some sorts of job seekers allowance and and. To benefits like that so it basically there's a system there to try and protect the most vulnerable so they do have access to free dental care mm. but the majority of adults will be paying for their dental treatment
1: yes but a lot of people also can't even get on an NHS uh, dentist um, list can they because in lots of areas of the country they will say oh no we don't we're not taking on any more NHS patients
5: yeah so again this comes down to the number of units of dental activity that a practice has they can only provide a limited quantity of dentistry. So once they've done that, they can't do any more. So you've got practices where they're just at capacity. Now, the problem with COVID is because we've had to extend appointments because of the regulations that have been imposed upon us by Public Health England. That has reduced even further the number of patients we can see. So... Previously, pre-COVID, most practices would struggle to take on new patients regularly. Now, virtually nobody has the capacity to see somebody that's, that's not an existing patient.
1: Mm. I've got lots of texts and tweets coming in. I'll read you this one, uh, which is from Steve. He says, don't start me on dentists. Called ours yesterday to make an appointment for checkups with myself and my wife. The dentist we've been going to for years is now only taking private cosmetic work for the future. So I'm having to look for a new dentist. I think that's an experience that a lot of people have had.
5: Mm, yeah. And as I say, it, it fundamentally, it comes down to a very inappropriate contract that dental practices have with government. There is a, a talk of contract reform that's been ongoing for a decade because it, we all know the, the dentists, the British Dental Association and the government know that it's not fit for purpose. And what it's doing is it's failing to provide Good quality dental care for the whole population, which is what it should be providing, and it's not doing that.
1: Right. So, what's the answer then? What do people? What what needs to be done? Because what we like to do here at Talk Radio is find solutions to these problems. I mean, do you need? Is it just a matter of more money? Uh, because it's you know the amount of money being spent on the NHS is prodigious. So, I mean, yep. you know, the idea that the NHS doesn't have enough money is a joke. It's, it's got plenty of money. It just needs to be reallocated, presumably.
5: Yeah. So, NHS dentistry is the only part of the NHS that is actually running on an, an equivalent lost since 10 years ago so we we have we have less money going into nhs dentistry in real terms now than a decade ago which is the only part of the nhs which is doing that it's reducing the amount of access it's reducing the amount of funding um well that's the, just
1: not actually because the gps say the same thing
5: um yeah but there's there's different ways of funding so i think with the gp practices if you look at the spend in real terms GP practices are, in some instances, entitled to things like capital funding. So they'll be given grants to do certain things, whereas dental practices are generally independently yeah. owned. They get no NHS but that's money.
1: We, but that's what the GPs are now. Most of them are independent. What they get is a fixed sum of money per patient. So if they yeah. have 100 patients, they get 100 times whatever the, the stipend is. Seems to me that would make more sense to do that in the dental world, wouldn't it?
5: Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of different ways of doing it. So you've got capitation, which is you get a, a pot of that's money painful. per patient per year. You've got fee per item. So if you have one filling, you pay for one filling. If you have three fillings, you pay for three fillings.
1: Yeah, but if Uh, I'm paying for the filling, right, because I'm an NHS patient, then what's the dentist getting out of that from the government?
5: So it depends on the value of their contract. And this is another complexity with the the contract that we have. So basically what's happening with NHS dentistry is that the the dentistry is generally subsidised by the government. So the patient will pay their portion Mm. and the government will top it up. Uh, depending on how much their contract is worth. Now, there are some areas of the country, there are some contracts where actually the fee that the dentist receives is lower than the patient charge. So when a patient goes in for a checkup, the government collect money. So it's effectively a tax collection service um, because the the, the the practice are paid less per patient. Per well, so year. if
1: you pay 25 quid for a checkup, the dentist doesn't keep that.
5: No, no, in some cases they don't. So in some areas, if they're high needs areas, they'll get a little bit of extra top-up money from the government. But in some areas, they'll actually have to give the Treasury some of that money. Why? It's just the way that the, the historical contract has worked. They're and, not very good at negotiating, by the sounds, with the dentists. Um, so we've been in, in negotiations for a long time, the British Dental Association, with the Department of Health, with regard to contract reform. But the problem is, it's a complex system and yeah, but why is it though? This is the
1: thing. I mean, private dentistry works very well. You go in, you pay through the nose, you get it done, and you can get it done tomorrow if you want. You're right? Why is the NHS so different from that? Why can you not make the NHS more like the private system and make it more efficient?
5: Yeah, I mean, the, the problem that we've got is that the government are reluctant to spend more money to, to achieve that. So what they would like us to do is to increase the amount of access for no increased money and that that's that's the difficult issue that we've always got you know you can't have more for less and this is what the government seem to have been pushing for they want us to do x y and z in addition but what they need to do so really—so maybe more people
1: need to pay then, and maybe you should stop giving it away for free to all sorts of people
5: well we need to make sure that it is an equitable system you know if somebody doesn't yeah, have but it's the- not, though is it
1: no but I mean we've I mean you could be on a low income for example but because you're not on benefits you have to pay to go to the dentist whereas if you're on benefits and you've actually got more money than that person who's on a low income uh, you get it for free that's mad
5: yeah. yeah but I mean and again because of the complexity of the way that the benefit system works you know there's no easy fix for all of this the only easy fix would be to make dentistry to be free for everybody at the point of access as it is with other NHS dental uh, NHS services right. And that would be fantastic, but that would cost the government yet more money. Um, the well, maybe patient- they
1: could fire some of the management.
5: Yeah, the patient charges do cover quite a considerable portion of the money that's spent on NHS dentistry. So if we were to get rid of that and have it completely government funded, that would be a significant increase in the yeah. amount. The government What's pay- the
1: actual proportion, if you can tell me, I don't know if you know, of people who pay for NHS dentistry in terms of the number of patients? What's the, Is it 50% of people that pay? Is it 40%? Is it 60%? What is it?
5: I don't have the figures off the top of my head. But what and do you it, think it is? The so you, area must, of,
1: you must have an idea.
5: It would be the majority.
1: The majority of people pay?
5: Yeah.
1: Right. Okay. Yeah.
5: It's a mess, isn't it? it? Yeah, it is a mess. And there is a, a parliamentary debate tomorrow, um, which is looking at at dentistry. As I say, the contract reform process has been ongoing. What we really need to do is at this point just be pushing for them to actually do something, make some positive changes to reform the contract, make it an accessible, decent contract that allows all patients in the UK to access NHS dentistry if they want to. And what about
1: people who are trained as dentists and paid for by us to train as dentists and who then go off and work in the private sector? Is there any um, sort of um, emphasis on them having to work in the NHS for a while or not?
5: Again, it's very difficult to do. You know, controlling somebody's working environment. I think the majority of of dentists that work in the UK spend at least the the decent proportion of their early years working exclusively in the NHS. Mm. Um, It's what we've got to do is we've got to make it a system that works, and it's not. But it's it's clearly not that at the moment, is it? No, and this is something that's very important. You know, it, it's not about the money; it's about the working conditions, and it's it's very difficult working as an NHS dentist. The bureaucracy around it, compared to private dentistry, is crippling, and the stress levels in dentistry are very high anyway. And we do find that we've got an increasing proportion, particularly of younger dentists, who are leaving the profession altogether. So it's not just an issue why? of them going to private dentistry; they're just leaving. But it's why? Just, they don't want to work in it in a system that's uncomfortable you know it's much it is a very stressful with the litigation with the nhs bureaucracy the stress is there a lot
1: of money going out the system in litigation
5: um there is i mean it's to be honest it's more the day-to-day stress you know you've got a very busy working environment you're back to back with patients there's no there's no let up um and you know if my diary is arranged in five minutes lots multiples of five but there's no gaps in between them you know occasionally I'll get to go and have a cup of tea but well, I am surely that's uh,
1: down to the individual dentist practice isn't it if you can't manage yourself and you can't manage a dentist practice why are you a dentist well indeed
5: and we find you know I mean, that's like me
1: complaining that I have to do a three-hour radio show I don't get to go yeah. to the toilet you know yeah. I know that so I go to the toilet before I
5: start the show and then I do three hours and then I'm done Yeah, indeed. I mean, I think the problem that we've got is that with NHS dentistry, quite often, that's an eight hour shift, not a three hour shift where you don't have time to go to the loo. And it's, you know, we we go into this knowing that it's not a straightforward, easy job. You know, we don't expect it to be a straightforward, easy job. But actually, if it becomes unbearable in that, you know, your, your work life balance is such that you're not able to enjoy your life, why not leave and go and do something different? Uh, you know, it might be that these people are better suited to, to working on the radio or, you know. Very much in- doubt
1: it. It's very stressful yeah. on the radio, you know. You have to get it right all the time. You can't be inefficient or you get fired. You can't waste everybody else's money. Uh, and you couldn't actually hold down a job if you were as inefficient as you lot seem to be, without wishing to be personal, Hannah.
5: Well, you know, I don't, to be honest, the inefficiencies in dental practice at the moment are 100% down to the Public Health England standard operating procedures that we legally have to follow mm. because of covid we have no option about that if we choose yeah, not you just follow... said this
1: is not just about covid it's been going on for years
5: oh but that's not due to inefficiencies within the dental practices sure? i think you fine. that dentists are very efficient in their working days they work back to back all day there is no sitting around drinking tea the contract doesn't work and it doesn't permit Because they're not providing enough dentistry to cover the population. So even if all the dentists are working flat out, the government is still only funding enough for 50% of the population. No, I get get
1: all that. But I mean, it's up to you to fix that. Hannah, listen, we've got to run because we're running out of time. But appreciate your time. Thank you. Hannah Woolner, chair of the British Dental Association's UK Council. Um... I'm not sure what to make of all that, really. I mean, they don't seem to be terribly efficient. They don't seem to know how to negotiate a contract. They don't seem to know how to run a dental practice. Apart from that, it's all going swimmingly. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, we're going to talk to one of my favourite people. Uh, We don't get him on often enough, really. Howard Cox uh, is here with us. He's the co-founder of the Fair Fuel UK campaign. This is a man that you should all be thanking if you are actually driving a vehicle out there today, listening to talk radio, uh, because this is a man who lobbies the government on a regular basis to get uh, the fuel duty down uh, to make sure it doesn't go up uh, and to try and actually fight for the rights for what I regard uh, as the um, overwhelming majority of people in this country who actually drive around Rather than cycle on two wheels, Howard. Uh, welcome to the show. Nice to see. you.
0: Hello, Michael. It's a lovely introduction. I don't know if I could live up to that. Listen,
1: friend. listen. Um, you know, you get a lot of hatred on uh, on social media. Uh, you yep. get a lot of hatred in real life. Um, but what you do is you speak up for uh, the people who don't bizarrely really have much of a voice, even though it's most people in the country.
0: That's right. There's 37 million of us driving, and it's sad that some of the other associations don't do anything uh, about it. And Yeah, the the way it works is I work very closely with politicians and politicians are the ones that make decisions and that's where we're talking today because local politicians, uh, you know, these local traffic neighbourhoods, networks, whatever you want to call them, uh, don't work and yet they're making a hell of a lot of money for for councils.
1: Yes, and once again, the councils take all this money in, 14 million quid I think is the figure uh, that's being quoted this morning and who knows where that money actually goes what do they do with it? Well, we've uh, well. I, I wrote last week
0: to uh, the uh, several councils in London to ask what they're doing with the money. As yet, yeah, it's a deafening silence yes. of nothing back. Um, and I, I, I've written to Grant Shapps for the same reason. You know, the, the, the transport there's no long-term road user transport strategy. Yeah. It's a mess. It's 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 not a national ca- uh, control of our roads. It's individual roads who want to make loads of money. Right. And it's it's been created by proactive transport obsessives. No, this uh, they use this word active transport so it sounds some virtual thing mm. it's it's really clueless road transport politicos without any idea uh of actually consulting with the people that matter well, that's well the local. latest
1: the latest act of complete and utter madness for me was last week when tfl transport for london decided it'd be a great idea uh that we haven't got enough electric scooters on the roads in london so let oh. us uh license some so that they can now have points at which people can pick them up. Uh, These are things that are already very dangerous. People are riding around on them, committing crimes. People are knocking people over, uh, damaging, um, you know, various different pieces of machinery, different cars, banging into taxis. These are all illegal. They're now going to make twice as many available legally. I mean, what a ridiculous idea that is. Well, it's hardly active
0: transport, is it? They're trying to get us, you know, the active transport czars. They're saying they want us to cycle, they want us to walk. I walked five miles this morning, but I also choose to use my car. Yeah, I'm not far from you. In, uh, I live in on the Kent border near Rye, yeah. that area. And it's a beautiful area, and I walk most mornings at 6 o'clock because it's gorgeous. It's very nice. But even down there, there's a cycle track there where cyclists don't give a damn about people that are walking. Mm. Uh, I saw a person this morning. It really made me angry, and I chased after him with the – I'm about to have a hip operation, so I couldn't run very fast. But uh, I chased after this guy because this older lady was actually nearly pushed over by right. this cyclist. Right. She didn't hear him whatsoever. And this is the problem. It's become a divisive uh, situation. There's almost cyclists, these people dressed up in Lycra, people who, as you said, you know, the Sky guy, yeah. You know, uh, it's unbelievable. I mean what is that
1: all about, by the way? I mean, why would you dress up as if you were in a Sky professional cycling team when you're cycling around south-east London? when you're clearly not in a professional cycling team?
0: Well, I've been a long-term Crystal Palace fan. I've never worn a Crystal Palace shirt in my
1: car ever. So. I mean, there's a, there's a Twitter account called Full Kit Something, which I can't say. Yeah. It's a bit like yeah. that, isn't it? Yes, it, it absolutely is. But the serious point
0: is there's still no joined-up thinking. These uh, uh, local traffic networks, all they do is push it onto side roads, mm. they create more congestion, and they create more pollution. Oh, where is the logic in this oh hang on a second we're making 14 million pounds right
1: that's the logic well i see from this uh <laughs> this this uh, piece of data that i've got here two hundred and fifty thousand fines handed out in the past year to motorists but what are they what are they fining you for is it stuff that they're catching you doing on camera is it somebody taking a picture of the what what is it that most people are getting fined for well you're getting fined for actually uh Going into cycle lanes, of
0: where where it says no cars are allowed, mm. it's the same. If you go into a bus lane, uh, Mike, that sort of thing, yeah. you get fined, and it only can be done by a camera or someone that's actually uh, shopping you in. Right. Uh, the, the thing is, it can accidentally if you driving down a road and a, a kid walks out or a dog runs across the road, you're going to go into the lane. Yeah. Those are the sorts of things. Perhaps you cannot help it. Right. And there are
1: people who are accidentally finding themselves because of bad signage. Right. All these sorts of things are a problem. Well, that that is a massive problem. I mean, I, I for example, uh, don't come into work on the, in the car every day. I did This morning I came in on the tube. But sometimes if I do come in, I drive along Jamaica Road, and I'm sorry if this sounds very yeah. London-based, where there is a very big cycle lane now on the right-hand side. Cyclists <laughs> don't use it. I mean, some of them do, but a lot of them don't and i don't understand why they don't get fined for not using the cycle lane which was built at vast expense on taxpayers uh, money but they're not even in it well local traffic networks are simply roadblocks
0: there's there are no go zones moving traffic to other roads yeah they're stopping decent people small businesses deliveries uh, local tradesmen who have no choice but they've got to use their vehicles Yeah, right. and i'm sorry they contribute the fourth largest income to the treasury cyclists don't
1: yes and, of course, the cyclists always make the argument, oh, well, what, what are you making up we don't pay any tax? We well, don't pay any tax to use the bike, and that's the point. It's not about whether you pay income tax or whether you pay VAT or whether you pay road tax because you've also got a car. The fact is uh, you, are, you are given no charge for cycling about, creating a menace, going through red lights, and generally breaking the law.
0: Well, every vehicle, a car, van, truck, motorbiker, pays tax to use the roads. The cyclists do not pay tax to use the roads. It's as simple as that. Mm. And I get incredible hate mail regarding that sort of thing. I'm sorry, I'm not going away. I'm going to continue to fight on behalf of motorists, but I'm also willing to talk to uh, a cyclist to say, let's have some joined up thinking. What's the best solution? Uh. We have Victorian roads. We cannot uh, uh, rule rule off half the road for your selfish uh, sport. When, when drivers... No, I mean, it's the same
1: as these nutters who want us to all go living off plants, you know, and they decided to, to roadblock the McDonald's lorries at the weekend because they want us all to eat plants. I don't care what they eat. You know, they shouldn't care what I eat. In the same way that if you want to cycle around London, good luck to you. I think it's quite dangerous and you're probably putting your life at risk. I wouldn't do it and I wouldn't let my kids do it. But, you know, don't tell me I have to do it because you want me to.
0: Well, you said that brilliantly just now. The problem is... The government, the people making decisions on these so-called uh, uh, road user strategies we have at the moment, are have got the biggest uh, voice is the minority. Yeah. These cycling groups, these activists, and they're making people feel guilty. I've just finished a survey, which is an all-party parliamentary group on secretary to the Fair Fuel uh, APPG, which we're looking at cradle to grave electric vehicles versus internal combustion engine. We're looking at twenty thirty ban, and we're looking at the future of fuel duty. It's a massive report, and one of the things that comes out of this is that wait for this is that everyone is saying anyone who used the roads should pay to use it and that's cyclists and electric yeah. vehicle and that's entirely t- it's
1: entirely fair surely isn't it At, well uh, I, I think so and i think most of the, anyone with any common sense uh, would agree with you it really is quite bizarre but of course you've got these czars haven't you and i mean this is not just a london problem there's leeds there's yeah. oxford manchester i'm told has got quite a big problem with this glasgow they pedestrianized sucky hall street Um, outside of you know some of the venues that people go to late at night so you now can't even get a taxi if you're coming out of one of those places you have to walk down the road so if you're a woman late at night uh, you can't just wait outside the building that you've come out of you have to walk down the road which is obviously more risky but I'm looking at some of the facts and figures this morning incredible Lambeth council has netted 2.4 million pounds for 53,000 tickets generated from one scheme uh one from um where is it enfield collected 2.2 million hackney 1.7 million and in some cases uh just in seven weeks dulwich village 22,424 fines i mean there must be literally giving them out every two minutes well it, it is exactly that and don't forget
0: there's congestion charges for uh, for motorists. of ultra low emission zones we're looking at all sorts of all sorts of ways to stop motorists actually going about their normal uh, day's business or or going to hospitals. I mean, there's a 91 year old saying to me in in uh, our survey yesterday. It's it's very emotive. I tweeted it. She simply said, I've got no choice. I rely on the motor car. I don't drive it. Mm. I'm taking it. My carers take it. They have to use the car, my wheelchair in the back. And I have to go to St. Thomas's Hospital. I mean, Uh, what's happening? And she's going to be fined if if that carer is going to be fined
1: if if she strays into a cycle. Right. That's outrageous. It really is. So, I mean, in terms of some of these uh, schemes, I'm told that many of them have been reversed in recent weeks, Howard, because they've been challenged in the courts. And so it would seem that many of them are not actually legally set up. Is that the case for all of them? Well, they were always
0: put under that little word called temporary.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, And we've seen that the same with uh, Sadiq Khan, with in terms of putting the congestion charge down. Yeah, it's a shame
1: he's not temporary. (laughs) That would be good.
0: (laughs) I know. It's amazing, isn't it? (laughs) Don't forget, he's expanding the ultra-low emissions zone to the North and South Circular in October.
1: Yeah, yeah. Watch this space. But you're right. And whatever happened to his promise to bring the congestion charge down, by the way?
0: Well, he did bring it to 1250, didn't he? He did did do that. Oh, did he? But but it's a pre-election little dangle the carrot, aren't I great? I care about the motorists because, you know, and it was a close in the first run. He was close to Sean Bailey. Mm. Uh, And I've spoken to Sean Bailey about this. And I'm afraid uh, London, as has Manchester, as most of the other major cities, has great public transport. Mm. Uh, unfortunately but if you live outside of it you do as well. well i do i've got no choice i have to use my vehicle
1: yeah but i also choose you know, my son right trips. here's a story for you about what goes on down in in, in other parts of the country my son's got, finally got himself a job right working in a restaurant it's about 10 miles from the house it's a right. it's a 10 15 minute car ride but it's there and back yeah. you know it's, a, it's there and back yeah. twice to come pick him up there is a bus service right but do you know how long the bus takes to get from the restaurant where he works <laughs> to, to where he could walk home two hours Right, <laughs> two hours instead of ten minutes because you've got to change somewhere, and it's and it costs seven fifty. So people, can't... I mean, that would, it's not worth him going to work.
0: I know this is the stupidity of the thing, and this is what's wrong.
1: But we're being forced into
0: it. We are being dictated to yeah. regarding what you choose to drive and choose to do, and it is impacting on businesses, small businesses. I see, as you know, I'm backed by the haulage associations, yeah. and they are livid about what's happening. They can't get down these streets. They can't deliver great big things. They can't carry. They have to use a uh, uh, pallet uh, uh, platforms to yeah. move things around through. It, it is wrecking uh, London. I'm afraid it's going to get even worse. I'm, you're right. it's not just London, it's Manchester right across the country in mm. major cities.
1: It really is. Howard, listen, we're with you here at Talk Radio, so any time you need our help, please ask for it. We'll be very happy to grant it. Howard Cox, co-founder of the Fair Fuel UK campaign. Absolutely outrageous what's going on out there. Can you imagine? £14 million worth of fines collected by various councils around the country. Where's the money going? What are they spending it on? Talk Radio. Across the UK.
0: Online. On DAB. And on your smart speaker. The independent republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio.